I'm Denise Laidler, an international communications consultant and fiction writer who've been following Seku's work for over 10 years. Seku's latest Unmasked series provides a safe, unfiltered, empathetic space for Black men and women in America to lay down the shield that helps them survive traumatic experiences that are commonplace to living in this country. I went to college about 100 miles away from where, from New York City, where I live now, where I was born, where I grew up. And um, one of the great sort of luxuries, one of the good things about going to college so close to home is that when you need money, as college kids often do, you can actually go home and get it relatively easy. Now, this was before, this was back in the day when it wasn't as easy to transfer money to people. You know, we didn't have sort of the online apps or any of that stuff. So you either had to have someone mail you a check or pick up cash in person. And uh, for folks whose parents were in a cash business, like my dad who drove a taxi, or like my friend's parents who had a moving company, that was usually accomplished when you did a visit. So one afternoon, it turns out my one of my friends was we heard he's going to the city. He's going to get some money from his parents. You know, so we just, you know, he had a he had a car. So we were just going to, or we had a another friend had a car. So we were just going to troop down, spend the evening in the city, and then head back up. So we we did it. We headed headed down. We got his money. We stopped on Eighth Street in the village. We got something to eat. We looked at leather bags. All the things you do when you're a teenager and you don't have a lot of responsibilities and so on. And so we turned around to head back up to the city at the end of the night, up to college at the end of the night. And um, we're on the road on, um, on the Merritt Parkway, which at that time could get pretty dark in certain stretches as you got farther and, away from, farther and farther away from New York. So we get about a half hour, 20 minutes away from school, just past New Haven. And we get pulled over. Now, we're a bunch of bunch of black guys in a car late at night in Connecticut. So we are being very intentional about how we drive. Um, we had enough experience by then. The whole brown boy, bad, bad Negroes in a car paradigm was something we had, you know, you start reacting to that when you're 14, 15. So by the time you're 18, 19, you know there are moments where you just have to be on your P's and Q's, and that's one of them. We get pulled over, we weren't speeding. And um, we know it's time to chill. So cop, so there's an officer behind us, a car behind us, and nothing happens. Several minutes pass, another cop, police officer car pulls in front of us. And uh, so now that's not as usual, not as common. So now we're definitely wary. Now, a few more minutes pass and then two officers get out one on the driver's side one on the passenger side two more are behind the car so you know we're a little concerned they don't ask for license and registration they just go straight to the driver when they start talking and they say step out of the vehicle 
So it's late at night, it's cold, it's Connecticut, dark stretch of road, and we don't fight. Gets out, and we don't see him again. He just He's just gone. So the rest of us are sitting in the car waiting to see, waiting for the other shooter fall. And so the other, the other uh, police officer says, uh, he asked the guy on the passenger side, you know, let me get some ID. So he gives him his ID. And I think whoever that driver was, whoever that person was, I mean, he didn't have a license. You know, we're all city kids and uh, not everybody has a license. Not everybody drives. So, but he had his college ID. So he gave him his ID and um, police officer takes it. And so he asks his question, where are you headed? Where are you from? Where are you going? Blah, blah, blah. What you been doing this evening? Tells him the story. Asked the second person in the car, let me see some ID. Gives him his ID. I think he had a license. Gives him his license. Where you headed? You know, where you're from? What have you been doing this evening? Blah, blah, blah. So by the time you get to the third person, we know the drill. So we're trying to say, hey, we're together. We all are going to the same school. We're heading back. You know, not hearing it. They still make us all go through it. And they start being really abusive. Start, you know, you know what you're doing? You're asking questions. And they got jokes. And with each other and they're laughing at us they have us get out the car they search us and have us kneel by the side of the car by the side of the road back to the highway so during the search like i said my my friend was going to the city to get money from his parents they find he has a fanny pack and he has all this cash in it and they, that's, they, they go into that, you know, where'd you get all this money, blah, 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 why you have all this money? Uh, not realizing that, you know, his parents moved boxes to get that money. <laughs> Hustled, you know, and, and my dad, if I had all the money in my pocket was from my dad picking up fares. You know what I mean? We're allowed, we're, we're allowed to have their sacrifice in our pockets, but not to them. And, uh, not to the police. And they, um, so they let us sit after a while. And then they let, finally comes back. And we realized that there are six cops, three police cars. He'd been in the car behind the car behind us. And they, they search that car. I mean, they take out the spare. They, uh, they thoroughly search the car. I don't need to go into detail on that. And they don't find anything. And they don't find anything on us except for the cash in our pockets especially the cash in one of my friend's pockets. And they let us go with a citation for, the car had a bench seat and our front seat had three passengers in it, which I think at the time wasn't illegal yet, but they said it was a, he didn't have a seat belt that was proper. He didn't have a shoulder belt. I don't remember. It wasn't illegal, but it was a problem. And uh, so they gave us a citation for that, which wasn't even like a money ticket. They let us go. And, uh, so we continued on, we went back up to school and we didn't talk about it. And I hope I didn't say the driver's name because he might be embarrassed, but we were terrified and he, you know, he cried and it was tears of rage, tears of whatever, release. And uh, so we get up to school and we don't talk about it. We, I mean, I talked about it with one of my friends, with one guy since, but we've never spoken about it since, except for this. There was uh, the Rodney King beating happened maybe two months later, three months later. And there was a teach-in slash speak-in at our campus center. 
And uh, the guy, our driver, he gave this speech where he, he got up and he talked about how anger it made him, how frustrated he was like, I want, just how we can understand why people would want to riot. He was like, I would want to tear up my own stuff. And it stayed with me because I remember feeling that way. And um, we tell the story when I speak, one, the one friend I do keep in touch with, he lives here in Harlem. We're friends. Our wives are friends. Our kids are friends. They both, you know, anyway. They are, we talk about it. But when we told that story, we usually tell that story comedically, making ourselves the butt of a joke. And that's, I don't know whether that's self-care or self-therapy or the way that we cope. I don't want to, oh, boo is, you know, boo-hoo, woe is me. But we rarely talk about the rage. What it's like to be, you know, brown boy mad. And the shame. You know, it's embarrassing. I don't know why. Like, you're never, being a victim of violence or someone treats you poorly isn't something that you should feel shame about. But we do. We don't talk about it. Without shame. What surprised me the most about this submission is that it wasn't funny. And I know that sounds odd, but my friend had told me this story before several times. And every time he told me this story, he made it funny, like not just funny, but hilarious. And thinking back on it now, having heard the version that you just heard, I realized that he had been using humor in an attempt to mask the pain for himself and for me too. And it's interesting how often we do that. We, those of us who had experiences like this, we mask our pain and bury our pain to shield ourselves and also to shield others. And it's a shame that we have to do that. I was talking to a friend of mine today about this project and he, and he was saying, where else can we tell these stories? And I hadn't thought about it quite that way. And I'm sure there are other places, but those places are few and far between. The places where we can tell these stories and feel like we are exercising the demons within us, exercising these experiences, but also being heard in a safe space. So this story, this submission surprised me. And really it was the catalyst that made me know that I had to keep moving forward with this project. Because when he told me this story and it came out so differently, I realized that I have been shielding myself from one of my most painful stories by using spoken word as a veil, if you will. And so if he and I are both doing that, then there must be other people who are doing that, who are shading themselves from these experiences. And here, I hope, is a safe space where people can express themselves and tell these stories and help others grow 
by listening to them. Ashe and amen. So I wrote this play. It's called Brown Boy Mad. It's an autobiographical journey of race, rage, and survival in quote-unquote post-racial America. Basically, it's my story. When COVID happened, I had to transform the play into a film of sorts, which had the added benefit of expanding the audience. One of my friends saw it. He said that he and his friends had stories that were very similar to mine. What you're about to hear is the result of me collecting those stories from him, as well as putting an all call out on social media for stories of living while black. My name is Sekou Rights.